and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Hi, and welcome to another Conversation on Climate. Today it gives me great pleasure to introduce Ramaz Nasser, who's a lawyer, an entrepreneur, former engineer, currently a board director of a Euronex listed company in the climate tech space. Today we've got a great conversation about where big data meets climate change. Hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as, as I had in having it. It's very interesting and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Ramaz, thanks very much for taking the time to come in and speak to us. Pleasure, Chris. So you've got a really interesting journey where you're very much into big data and big data analysis, and we're here to talk to you about where big data meets climate. Could you possibly tell us a little bit about your journey to, to this point? Yes. Um, I started off as a mechanical engineer and then became a lawyer and um, became more and more entrepreneurial in my journey. And uh, I'm a founding investor in Energis, which is a year next growth-listed company uh, focused on big data in the energy space. The debate around energy uh, does tend to focus in on particular types of technologies and whether they're more or less useful. Um, Where do you see big data fitting within that debate? I think to make any progress in any domain, you have to be able to measure what you're doing to have any significant impact and be able to measure the size of that impact. And um, with the development of technology of IoT, we're equipping buildings, we're equipping cities, factories, with a whole host of electronic components, and to be able to measure their efficiency and measure their efficiency at using energy effectively, we have to be able to apply big data techniques as the numbers multiply to to reach efficiency. Could you dig dig into that a little bit more? Like, what what do you actually mean by that? That's that's very big picture stuff. What does that mean in reality on the ground? It means collecting a lot of heterogeneous data. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about IoT data, SCADA systems, BMS data, contract data, meteorological data, uh, which is all very heterogeneous and increasingly complex. And being able to make sense of a lot of it, sometimes in real time, and to do so on a massive scale. And that's a real technical challenge but one that we have to meet if we are to, um, uh, to go towards net zero uh, and be able to measure our progression towards net zero. There's a lot of really good intentions uh, in, in the world right now, and it's getting us a certain part of the way, but big data seems to enable more understanding. Uh, should we have a more quantifiable approach to managing these issues? I think quantifiability is essential to accountability, Chris. And um, to, in order to measure progress and to see a difference, we need to be able to measure that progress. And we need to be able to, uh, to analyze the data around it. Okay. And you yourself are between London and, and Paris. Mm-hmm. You know, so you spend your time between the two. Very much inter- uh, interested in um, the international aspects, how different countries and different cities are approaching these, these challenges. Because it's a little bit about the differences between London and Paris um, in their, their approaches to climate in general, uh, mitigation, but also how data is being used in the, in the two cities? Um, I think you've got a public policy angle and you've got a private sector angle. Mm-hmm. Um, on the public policy angle, um, the European continent and France in particular has been very active in using both a carrot and a stick. And an example of that is the uh, French tertiary decree, the Décret Tertiaire, 
which puts some very real targets that uh, people have to meet, especially real estate owners, over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so the idea is that by 2050, you will have to reduce your building emissions by 60% in France. So anyone who owns over a thousand square meters or operates over a thousand square meters will have to reduce their emissions by over 60% over the next 28 years. The UK um, has some very ambitious goals in terms of reaching net zero, uh, but I think it's left a lot more to the private sector uh, and there's less of a stick uh, associated with that. So the French are, are pushing very hard uh, this agenda. Uh, on the private sector side, I would say traditionally venture capital has been a lot more active in the UK than in France, but you're seeing leveling up between the two jurisdictions and uh, driven both by public spending and uh, by corporate uh, VC activity. Um, how have you seen the investment markets for big data meets clean tech uh, evolve over the last number of years? Over the last five years, you've, um, you've had increasing uh, VC activity, but in, but you've got traditional VC and you've got corporate VCs. And I think a lot of the traditional VC has been spray and pray, uh, taking lots of little small bets, uh, because it's hard to see which, which techs will emerge. And it's partly driven by the fact that you've got two massive forces today in the IT space. You've got one, which is the ability of large IT infrastructure companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and others to provide hyperscale data storage. And on the other side, uh, you've got an AI ecosystem, which is growing very fast, made up of mostly SMEs with uh, people who've developed cool algorithms. But when you drill down, there's a Forbes statistic, which dates from 2016, and it hasn't changed since. Data scientists spend 80% of their time looking for data, cleaning up data, making it available and in a clean enough to be used for their algorithms. That's 80% of their time. So the challenge is being able to refine all of the data that we're accumulating in order for it to be used or usable by data scientists. And that will accelerate the energy transition. And so we're focused on the refinery bit, which is the, the middle bit, is developing the technology that will allow us to treat on a massive scale data that comes from, from various systems, whether it's IoT systems, BMS systems, cloud stored, uh, data, because companies today are, are um, facility managers, utilities in that space are sitting on vast cemeteries of data, which could be turned to, um, if data is the new gold, um, they need to turn their cemeteries into gold mines. And so to give you an idea of the scale we're talking about, in 2010, we estimate that the total amount of data that was stored in the world and on our IT systems was about in one and two zettabytes. And to give you an idea, that's 10 to the power of 21 bytes is a zettabyte. And by 2020, uh, we were talking of about 47 to 50 zettabytes. In 2035, we'll be talking of well over 2,000, 2,000 to 2,500 zettabytes. So the amount of data we're storing is increasing exponentially. And so it's crucial that we develop the technologies uh, to be able to make use of that data, especially uh, in the energy space, which is one of the areas that accumulates the most amount of data. Mm, absolutely, yeah. If we're, if we're going to, to successfully transition, we need to understand what we're listening from and to. We need to understand the, the scale of the problem. 
What's the role of regulation in that to, to, to make your life easier? What would you say to the European Commission or to, to, to Westminster as a help us here? I think um, you need both the, the carrot and the stick. The carrot, for example, in France, uh, there's been a lot more grant funding for these types of technologies. There's been public utilities and uh, the government have been a lot more adventurous in testing technology uh, than they have in the past. But you also need the right incentives whether it's it's a form of tax incentive, whether it's a, a uh, PR incentive. I think consumers today and users want to know um, that whatever company they're buying from is behaving to the best of its ability in terms of maximizing its, uh, its energy efficiency. Clearly, and this is an area that you feel very passionate about, very strongly about, but it isn't naturally the first thing that people think about when somebody thinks, oh, I want to get into climate. Big data isn't normally the place people will jump into, or people in big data... Climate isn't the place that people will go and jump into. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> okay. um, because uh, what we have seen um, in, in our journey is we've had very low attrition on the tech side, mm -hmm. for example. Okay. And the reason is um, you know, energy efficiency and climate change uh, is an area where people find purpose. You're not just trying to augment consumer spending for a particular type of luxury good. You're, you're actually... Uh, doing something that's meaningful and and helping um, you know your community, your city, your country, and the planet. So I think, especially for for young programmers, um, being involved in energy efficiency provides a sense of purpose and is a source of very meaningful work. Absolutely, I, I see. I see why it would work, uh, but. It isn't just the, the vast majority of people, the people coming out of, uh, of MIT are looking to go and work for, you know, Apple or Google or Microsoft or whatever. They're not looking at, looking at climate, climate issues. Like, how do we, how do we change that? How do we get those great talents? And of course, from London Business School, of course, as well, you know, into this type of space as opposed to looking at, looking for the large, uh, multinational, um, tech companies. I think, you know, the, the, the large multinational tech companies that you were mentioning, uh, realize as well that, um, they have to provide a sense of purpose uh, to be able to recruit stuff. It's a source of, of um, talent retention. Uh, for all their sins, they are making a concerted effort to be a lot more energy efficient and to be a lot more mindful um, than they were maybe you know, 20, 30 years ago when energy efficiency was a footnote. And of course, with energy prices increasing and affecting um, companies as well as consumers, I think it's something which is a lot more top of mind now. You can't open a newspaper today where you don't relate to the, to the cost of energy and the cost of living uh, increasing. So energy efficiency is, I think, uh, front of mind for a lot of people. In my case, it was uh, part of the entrepreneurial journey. It was meeting people who were very passionate about it, you know, an opportunity to be able to try and get involved in a technology that uh, uh, you know, would, would be tech for good. And, and what's your, your role in energies? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So I'm one of the founding investors and uh, been um, a non-exec and occasionally acting general counsel. So um, when you, know, you have a, uh, a fast-growing company, you have to uh, do all sorts of things and help, you know, all hands on deck, mm -hmm. as it were. So you've IPO'd on Euronext. Um, how did you find that, that journey? Were investors open to you? And how do you see the market in general um, in terms of capital uh, for clean for clean tech, uh, big data? I say two things. On, on a more personal level, uh, we, we did the first IPO on Euronext growth uh, during the first lockdown. So it was a lot of um, Zoom roadshows and there was a lot of um, institutional appetite. Um, we were massively oversubscribed because of, I think there's recognition that um, 
the tech is increasingly available and it's kind of the being at the, the right place at the right time and being able to recognize that and make the most of it. On a broader scale, I think you have generally a lot more VC money moving into, uh, into clean tech. But in clean tech, you've got to differentiate true technology from consulting work. And a lot of tech companies today are actually selling a lot of consulting work. The challenge is in finding the techs that are really differentiated. Uh, and that is quite a specialized uh, skill. And uh, recent events have created a lot of uh, nervousness and uncertainty, not necessarily reflected in stock markets, which uh, personally I find slightly bizarre. <laughs> but um, how do you see the next three, four years in terms of appetite for investments in the, in the clean tech space, uh, given the, the, the changing world, potentially higher interest rates, higher inflation, um, higher cost of living that we're, we're going into at the moment? I think that... Cleantech is uh, an absolute priority, uh, both uh, from a moral perspective. This is what populations in Europe, at least, and in America as well, expect from um, their governments, is a move to, to a lot cleaner power. Uh, and it's also a question of geopolitical significance, is greater energy independence. Now, that will, that will happen probably through a mix of cleantech, of nuclear... Um, and a, uh, a diversified uh, energy supply. And can we talk a, a little bit more about how um, other parts that big data can play in this? Um, like, for example, one of the, the large, the hottest top topics around at the moment is carbon credits and whether carbon credits can be put onto some sort of blockchain to make them identifiable and make them more easily tradable. That's just one example. Uh, could you talk about that and then any other applications that you feel big data can help with? I think when it, when it comes to blockchain, which is, you know, fundamentally a ledger technology, uh, in any form of trading, and that obviously includes carbon credits, it's very helpful in terms of creating traceability. And opposability, if you look at it from a legal perspective, you can also use it as um, to get third-party certification. Now, to know which ledger technology will eventually prevail, uh, what will be adopted, will not only be a function of technology, but also of regulation. And regulation is still uh, nascent. Uh, in that space. But you can imagine that there's going to be, um, uh, and it's already starting, uh, carbon credit tokens uh, that'll be tradable. And um, and Tesla has used a lot of carbon credits in its manufacturing. It's been a great source of revenue for them. So it's hard to tell today what role blockchain is going to play. And I think you'll have a lot of people who will potentially burn their fingers in, in doing so. And what well, one of the the big environmental concerns around big data are server farms, use of energy. And so the obvious question is, is the juice worth the squeeze? You're spending, you're spending an awful lot of power um, holding and processing this data. Is it worth it? So when you look at the consumption, the energy consumption of big data and data centers today, you can say that about 1% to 2% of the world's energy consumption is related to data centers and computing power. In some countries, it's a lot higher, like the UK or the US, where there are far more data centers and therefore they're a bigger share of the uh, overall energy bill. However, what we have seen is uh, servers and electronic components becoming a lot more energy efficient. Um, Hyperscale data centers have allowed for very efficient cooling systems that consume a fraction of what they were consuming only 10 years ago. And so the overall energy consumption of data centers has not been linear. So 
on a uh, per byte basis, it's been steadily reducing. And the hyperscale storage facilities over the, the large uh, clouds have put in a lot of solar power, have put a lot of renewables to power those uh, data centers because they're fully aware that the, again, the end consumer who's helping drive that change uh, expects a lot more greener storage of data. In some parts of the world, that is true. <laughs> in other parts of the world, it is uh, where traditionally where the places where you have cheapest energy, there's a lot of a lot of server farms, and cheapest energy normally means dirty, dirty, dirty coal. And you have to start somewhere. Yeah, I know you got to start somewhere. No, it is true. It is true. It is true. But you say um, uh, the costs of big data storage are coming down. Uh, it, it isn't a linear progression. But on the other on the other hand, um, the amount of data that's being stored is going up exponentially. So. One or two, one to two percent is still an awful lot of energy. It's sort of the equivalent of the airline industry. So it's, it's something that does really need to be need to be thought about. Is is this genuinely worth our while? Yes. So I think there's there's two ways of of trying to tackle this issue. The first way is becoming more efficient. So you know, you're talking about data storage. You know, cooling systems becoming more efficient. Electronic components, servers becoming more energy efficient. Uh, with virtual servers being able to run more and more applications on a single server, that's helping a lot. And that's part of the efficiency drive. Then there is a less pleasant side to it, is if you want to uh, be energy efficient, you have to find ways of consuming less. Not just being more efficient, but physically consuming less. An example, for example, is in, in uh, public uh, lighting. Um, you have some very large highways where um, at night there's very little traffic. And so if you for example, switched off public lighting from one in the morning to five in the morning, uh, you'd be saving four hours of nighttime lighting, uh, which most cities don't do. You know, you can look at it as one sixth of 24 hours, but it's more like one third of, of a night. So you can get some real economies. Uh, and for that, you're going to need technology to be able to measure the traffic, to be able to switch on lighting, sometimes on demand, if you're working on street lighting, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the future of, of smart cities is making a lot more efficient use of the energy you have by also trying to diminish the consumption. But our population is growing, you know, as a planet, our consumption is growing. And um, that's something we have to to tackle as well in terms of finding ways where we can really save energy by trying to alter a bit demand for energy. Yeah, no, no, that's great thought. It's great thought. That's something that hadn't occurred to me. But yes, once you say it, it's so obvious. Why aren't we doing it already? Uh, and I guess the answer is data. We we don't understand it properly yet. So just to to the the second part of that question, then, are there any other uh, like? areas in, in the big data space that we should be, be excited about keeping an eye on that you think can really make, a, make an impact? On, on the big data space, I mean, I think we're at the very beginning of, of the use of, of AI and of the efficient use of data for the greater good. But once you have developed that, tech, that technology, you can apply it to so many other sectors outside of, of energy efficiency. You know, in the medical space, being able to find the disease material or finding correlations that we couldn't think about previously. So I think, you know, big data has a big future in front of it in, in many sectors. Also has um, big dangers attached to it as well. Data plus analysis is equal to knowledge. Knowledge is equal to power. Power is subject to, to abuse. How do we protect against the like, big, big data um, becoming, you know, all-encompassing, all-controlling? <laughs> um, well, there's an element of uh, public policy, clearly, but I think it's a technology that's developing very fast. And the countries that 
don't invest in it will become more dependent on others. I mean, we're all interdependent in some way. And so we have to make choices, you know, whether it's you're interdependent um, uh, militarily, energetically, or from an energy point of view. But big data, I think today is almost a race, but I think it's essential to be at the forefront of it. And what role do you think that um, the European Union and Westminster or whatever can be playing in, in protecting that data? Well, you have, you know, you have um, GDPR that's in place, and you, I think you'll have a whole host of uh, new regulations as, as time goes by. And you raise a very important point, which is what, when you talk about data, you also talk about metadata. So, for example, an IoT probe that sends a, a message about a temperature or water temperature measurement actually sends a bunch of parameters in each message, maybe 40 parameters. And one will be the identifier of the probe, its location, it will be the battery life, it will be its frequency of transmission. And so being able to pick apart the metadata and share only the part of the data that you need to share with a customer, with a supplier, within an ecosystem is becoming crucial. So to give you a practical example, let's say you're a utility and you've deployed tens of thousands of probes from different manufacturers. And an AI company comes to see you and says, we would like to optimize, we have a solution to optimize the battery life of all your probes. Now, when you know the cost of installation of a probe, if you're able to optimize the battery life of a probe, it has a very significant impact. Just, just tell us quickly, well, what's, what, is a pro, what is a probe along a network? When you, when you talk about probes, what do you actually mean? Uh, it can be a smart meter. Mm -hmm. uh, a form of intelligent temperature gauge. Okay. Uh, it can be a a, a, a traffic measuring device. Mm. Um, so it's anything that provides data back into the system. Anything that provides that sends data back to a storage facility. Okay. But it can also be a, a SCADA system in a factory. It can be a building management system. Any piece of data that you receive today contains a lot of metadata, and being able to pick the part of the metadata that you're willing to share. So if you're that utility, you want to be able to share only the data that relates to the battery life of your probe and not everything else, whether it's the location of the probes or any other data which may be, become part of your IP. So being able to share only that battery life requires the ability to destructure that data, uh, understand it, and pick the parts that you want to share. So uh, one question we do try to try to ask is uh, why should people care about what you care about? So whether it's uh, it's a, it's an kind of LBS um, student sitting there wondering what to do with their career, whether it's somebody who has who's an who's an alumni or a C-suite executive uh, wants to spend their their time or their money or their their business into into this space. Like why should this be the space that they're they're putting their their time, their energy, their their efforts, or their their finances into? I wouldn't want to to tell anyone what to do with their life. But I think we all need to find a sense of purpose in what we do. And sustainability and the energy transition is a major societal issue. It is probably one of the you know key issues facing the planet today. And it's a sector which is growing very fast. So for me, it associates purpose with opportunity. And I think everyone has to uh, to be able to uh, hopefully be able to to make a decision in a space where they can find both those things in order to find some form of happiness. And if we're trying to break it down into uh, what your what your day looks like, could you tell us a little bit about your your your, your customer journey, your your interactions with your clients? What do you do for them? How do you do it? And how do you get the business? Just that's that type of story of a day in the life of. You know, in any entrepreneurial journey, every day is different, and you have to have both the 
the appetite and the ability uh, to handle different days. However, I think anyone starting in, in that space, whenever you're dealing with big data, you're generally dealing with organizations that accumulate that data. And it is often fairly large organizations that accumulate that data. And so you have to be ready for a for a customer that doesn't necessarily think as entrepreneurially as you do. And that what actually means is sales cycles uh, that small companies have to deal with in that space can sometimes be disconcerting in the beginning. So I think you have to be uh, very patient and being able to handhold uh, your clients until they're ready. We find our customers are also on a journey of discovery. And to give you an example is we offer both SaaS, which is software as a service, and PaaS, platform as a service, um, solutions in our business because we're seeing increasingly customers paying attention to what happens to their data and issues of data sovereignty. Where is the data stored? Who can access it? Uh, how is it accessed? Um, where are the cybersecurity risks associated with storing data? And it is something which uh, young companies have to be able to, to answer uh, increasingly quickly. And so I think, you know, data sovereignty uh, will be a major issue. And now, now obviously, you are a, a quoted company, Bellic on a you know, recognized investment exchange, so we can't call you a startup anymore. But uh, you were a startup. You had to go through these challenges. Is there any advice that you can be giving on, on that point or, or, or in general for startup companies or people thinking about starting up a company in this space? Two things come to mind. Number one is a lot of what we do, once you see it, sounds pretty obvious. But the, the necessarily obvious is not always easy to achieve. And so what we've seen is a shift in mentality over time where the large kind of blue chip customers thought that they ought to manage the entire software side of their business. But when you're an energy company or a hardware manufacturer, um, software is not native in terms of development culture. And so a lot of large clients have gone through the life cycle of trying to develop internal solutions, finding that it's very hard to bring together the required competencies to achieve that before externalizing. So I would say increasingly the, 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 the mindset shift towards ecosystem thinking. Uh, and this is something that we worked on very early on is recognizing that we bring a, a part of the puzzle, but we're willing to work with other pieces uh, to fill the picture in. And so today what you'll see is that we work with AI companies. We see ourselves as an AI enabler to provide an entire turnkey solution to the customer and allowing the customer or encouraging the customer to develop their own IP using our tools, but of which they remain in control. So that ecosystem thinking, I think, is a shift in, in the way businesses are developing now. And IT is becoming so complex and specialized that you have to be willing to think in ecosystem terms to progress quickly. And what advice would you give to somebody setting out on this journey? If you had your time again, um, what would you wish somebody had told you before you started out on the journey? Um, probably a lot of things, Chris. <laughs> um, but, but I think the key thing is resilience. There is no simple journey. There are always bumps on the road and you have to be humble and resilient about those. And I would say be ready for longer sales cycles than I initially expected. And we've found ways to, to now shorten them. And that is part of, of ecosystem thinking. So I think in any 
industry today, what you have to be is, is uh, uh, have your ears to the ground and talk to a lot of people and be willing to try uh, different solutions to, to existing problems. So um, as the world moves towards uh, net zero, there's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of, um, lot, lot of big words, a lot of good intentions. Uh, but where does data fit with, with, with us, us finally reaching the, the, the promised land of net zero? I think data and technology is an enabler. But fundamentally, on the one hand, you've got, you know, at an exogenous level, energy costs is going to, are going to have an effect on your top line and your bottom line. So I think companies will increasingly, as the price of energy goes up, increasingly work as part of improving their, their, either their top line or their bottom line, depending on which side of the business they're on, work to reduce their energy footprint. And in the case of utilities, it's providing additional service to their customers or facility managers to manage people's, uh, companies' carbon footprints. At a more endogenous level, I think we're moving away from having just a single energy manager in an organization or a head of innovation that looks after CSR, where energy 20 years ago was a footnote in a CSR report. I think today it needs to become a KPI um, for, um, for managers. So if you are running a fast food chain, for example, maybe a store manager needs to also take responsibility for the energy consumption of that store. So making energy efficiency a KPI and will take slightly different forms in different types of organizations, I think is, is a key to involving everyone to move more quickly towards net zero. Yeah, no, I have to, I have to agree with that. Um, just to slightly uh, question the premise, though, you started out by saying as energy prices go up, um, that isn't necessarily a given. Now, for, certainly from where we are, uh, that's, we, we've, had, we've had a long term of relatively stable energy prices until very recent days. When you say energy prices are going up, you, you, you put that as a, as a, you know, self-evident truth. Well, what will make it a self-evident truth? Do we need carbon pricing? Or what's, what's your, what's, what's your view on this? Or is it just, is just a kind of current situation in the, in the world that made you, made you, that made you say that? No, I think you, you know, you've got energy mixes which are different in each country. So the answer is slightly different. Uh, if you're relying on an old nuclear park, then that is mostly depreciated in terms of cost and your energy pricing is potentially lower or the cost of energy can be viewed as lower. And if you're investing massively, then it will take time to uh, to absorb the cost of doing so. But I think energy is not only about finance and its cost, it's also a geopolitical issue and it's an environmental issue and it's an issue for future generations. So I think it needs to be looked at from different angles. Okay. Well, one of the, one of the, the themes that's come throughout this, this conversation has been, um, everyone's place in an ecosystem. It's been, been how, how interactions, how ecosystems can be helping with, with all sorts of situations, how people need to be playing their particular role within the overall energy transition. Um, just as a, as a way of wrapping up the conversation, could you get, could you dig in a little bit more into your, your beliefs of the ecosystem thinking? I think to be, um, efficient in the energy space, everyone needs to focus on what they do best. So from our perspective, we're involved in tech. We don't intend to tell our customers how to run their businesses. We tend, we, we intend to provide them with the analysis and the data that would allow them to take the decisions that they need to take. But I think um, in an ecosystem, 
you need to get the best of what people are, are good at. If it's an AI company um, that's developed an algorithm for managing public lighting, public space lighting, uh, you need to be able to work with those. And um, I think the days of, of uh, all of the IP being developed in-house and retained by a single utility or large corporate um, are largely over if you want to, to keep a competitive edge. So um, I think a change of mindset um, we're seeing is already happening, uh, but we'll need to accelerate. Absolutely. It's both a challenge and an opportunity Absolutely. to make a real difference. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ramos. That was a fantastic conversation. Thank and, you, Chris. Uh, really enjoyed it. Very thank good. You. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.